Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hello, Hello there, Richard. Listeners. I'm on the road. Are you on the road, honey? I'm not on the road. I'm wondering where you are on the road. It sounds like the wind is blowing wherever you are. I'm going to go on mute in a minute until I get out of this wind. But just, just keeping with our policy of doing this show from wherever we happen to be, I took our horses out for a ride today, and I got up in a creek bed and had a hard time turning around. So I'm on I'm on a dirt road, more like a trail, riding along with our two horses. There's two horses and me here, Linda, but there's a missing party, and that's you. And maybe that's a good thing. Well, I think it's a very good thing that I'm out of the wind because when you're not talking, you should put your phone on mute. So I'm gonna put it on I'm gonna put it on mute while you introduce the subject and I'll probably get to a less windy spot. But I'll bet listeners you can imagine me out there on the prairie with the wind blowing, my cowboy hat on, I can sing a little song, I'm an old cow hand from the Rio Grande and with that I'll go on mute and let you introduce today's show. All right, hurry home. Um we are down in St. George. We actually have a little place down near Kolob Canyon where we keep our horses for the winter. And so um, we are looking out at the five fingers of the Kolob um, on our front deck, which is a gorgeous sight. And we have a beautiful field of golden ryegrass to look out with the ho- where the horses graze for the winter. So we're having a pretty nice time this weekend. Um, we are doing that because we are leaving, as we mentioned in the last show, we're leaving for Europe for five weeks on Saturday. And so um, we will be either pre-recording or calling you from a foreign country for a little while. Um, but the topic today that we've decided to talk about is what are the most important things we can teach our kids? You know... There are so many things that we can teach our kids, and I, we've, we've worried about this our whole lives because a whole barrage of things comes at you all the time. Like, oh, shoot, we should be teaching this. Oh, gosh, didn't we teach them that? Oh, we should be teaching this. We should be teaching that. There are so many things, and now that school's starting, it seems as though um, there are another thousand things that we should be teaching our kids. But years ago, we wrote a little book called Three Steps to a Strong Family. And uh, we thought that if we can narrow this down to three things, and of course there are several things within those three things, um, it would be really helpful. So I think I'm going to start with the last one in the book first um, and talk about that until Richard gets home and then he can help me with the other two. But the thing that um, we felt was very, very important, and maybe this will seem silly to you because, um, you know, it's just one of those things that you need to teach your children until you really start thinking about it. And that is the importance of family traditions and family narratives. Um, We have always felt that family traditions were important, but actually... Family narratives, which is the story of your family, is part of your family tradition. 
And as we've grown older and talked to more people, we've realized that um, that really is one of the most important things we can we can teach our kids, that we can talk to our kids about. Um, we really believe in not only just family history, but teaching our kids about where they came from, who they are. We have um, a friend, well, I should not say friend, but we're a fan of a man named Bruce Beiler, who has written a book recently about the importance of this family narrative as one of the things that he talks about. But he feels it's so important that he's been taking his father back to their homeland where his ancestors came from, father's aging and so on, and he wants him to see that because um, he feels it's not only important to reawaken that in our parents if it hasn't already been there, but also that his children need to know where they came from. And so the first part of tradition that I'll talk about until Richard gets here is how important it is to really... By the way, by the way anytime you hear a rushing of wind, you'll know I've come back on for a minute. And, uh, I just want to underscore what you're saying, Linda, and I think that's a good place to start because what we've found is that if, if children have the, the belonging feeling, if they have the feeling, the secure feeling that they are part of something bigger than themselves, which really does come largely through tradition, that puts them in a safe place in their mind and their emotions where they're really able to learn the other two things they're going to mention in just a moment. And uh, so uh, and I'm, it may take me a while to get there because I got way up in a wash and then couldn't get turned around, but you're doing great, and I'll keep chiming in. And when you listeners hear a little bit of a windy sound, you'll know that. By the way, here where we are at Kolob Canyon, the wind pretty much always blows, and I really like it. It cools it off and everything. It's just a little tough on the radio. So if it wasn't for the wind, you could hear the clip-clop of the horse's hooves, and I could do my yippee-i-o-kaye thing and so on, but we'll spare you that and say a little more on traditions, and then we'll introduce the second thing. Okay, because it's really miserable to hear what you're saying with the wind. You may not realize that, but you can yippee-o-kaye all you want to, my darling Richard, but you are in deep trouble <laughs> when you get home. Listeners will let you know if he survives by next week. But anyway, um, it really is so important to um, let these kids know where they came from. And I have to say that I spend some time every summer, as we've mentioned before, we have a family reunion. And then after we have our three and a half days with everybody there, um, I have a chance to be with my little grandchildren. And they're grouped by groups, uh, by ages. The oldest five are in a group, and then the next four are in a group, and then we have five in a group. Anyway, um, they're not allowed to come to Grammy Camp until they're five years old. And um, it is so interesting as we matriculate those little ones into the system um, because they are part of now a new group, But which is so fun for me because I get to have them. I take them up to a little place up on the hill where Richard and I go to sleep during the reunion so that we don't know who has been throwing up, fighting, uh, miserable, lost, or anything during the night, and then we're ready to go again the next day because really um, everyone stays for most of July. The, the moms and the kids 
stay. The dads come and go. Sometimes the moms come and go. And uh, we have a marvelous time. But for these little little slices of magic time that I have with this little small group of grandchildren, I um, spend some of that time talking about their family narrative. Um, we have pictures of our ancestors. We actually have, I have, my grandmother's family came to, and grandfather, although he died so young I never knew him, um, they came to Bear Lake Valley. They were sent there by Brigham Young uh, to settle Bloomington, Idaho. And so, of course, Bear Lake is right across the lake from there. So we have so much fun really telling stories because we're right in the location. We're so lucky to be able to do that. We're right in the location where these ancestors lived and, and sacrificed so much for us. Um, I have a darling grandmother who, these are the stories that the kids know and appreciate now because I tell it to them every year. But this little grandmother and grandfather left Denmark. Uh, they had six children. Their oldest daughter died before they left. They had five other little children from 11 to 3. And um, they got on a boat in Liverpool, and somebody else got on the boat with measles. And four of those little children died along the way on the boat and were buried at sea, which is so such a sad story. In fact, the last one died just as they saw um, land and I think the Statue of Liberty and they carried him on shore in New York City and buried him there somewhere. We have no idea where. But then that little grandmother um, got organized to walk across the plains. I think they got as far as St. Louis and then she became pregnant and walked across the plains 1,000 miles pregnant. And by the time they got to Bear Lake, um, she delivered a little baby in a house, a little log cabin with a dirt floor and the door in the middle of the winter. The door was um, the cover of the wagon, so it was just a canvas cover for a door. I cannot imagine that. But, you know, when I hear that story every year, I think if my grandma could do that, I can do anything. Come on, Linda, you can do this. And I think we all have ancestor stories like that where people can, um, when you can really identify with things that happened that made you strong because they were strong. There you are, Richard, in the wind I was just going to chime in from the wind and say, I wish you'd elaborate a little more on why that helps children to know not only that they had a grandpa who was a mayor or owned a bank or something, but why it also helps them to know that their ancestors had really, really tough times. Well, I think that's that's exactly what I'm saying. Um, you know, I, I don't think many of our ancestors were owners of a bank or the mayor of the town. It's true, and I think that's what you mean, Richard, but it really is interesting that um, it's just the everyday grit and we have learned through some study in the last little while and a, a TED Talk that I love um, about the importance of grit in our kids today. And, you know, that's why those pioneers did so well. That's why they had so few other problems. A lot of that is why we never heard about mental problems and um, issues that are so prevalent right now. I mean, maybe they had them, um, but they were so preoccupied with just surviving that it was not 
a big part of their lives. But I do think that if children know these stories, they know what their ancestors went through. And there are so many others in my genealogy. I was just looking last night because we were on our way to London, and we have several ancestors on this same side of our family who were from areas where we're going to be. So we're going to go and see their little hometowns and find their records in their churches and so on. But they were there for generations and generations. The, the point is, though, that if the kids know about this, I just sent this to my daughter who's now living in London, and I said, you look it up. You go to FamilySearch.org, and you look up their stories because I want you to tell them to me when I get there. And I think that gives kids ownership when they start looking things up and learning about these ancestors on their own and not just you feeding it to them all the time. All right, we're going to take a brief break, and I'm going to try to ride these horses where I'm in a little less wind. But when we come back, two other essential things to teach your children as they're growing up. Ayers on the Road, parenting in a modern world. Here's Richard and Linda Iyer. Well, you'll be going You'll be glad to hear, Linda, I'm out of the mountains, I'm down onto the, the road, and I just got to go through a couple of gates, and I'll be right back by your side. The show probably over by then. Oh, there, there, ladies chiming in. Can you hear a lady? She's saying a little word. She wants to be in on the show. But, you know, I think our listeners are going to say, why don't you ride a horse every week? Because we'd much rather listen to Linda than to you. And let me introduce the second thing. You should all teach your children to obey laws, to obey rules. We call it a family legal system. And, Linda, give us an introduction while I go through a fence. Going back to the fact that it's so important to teach kids about laws, I was just discussing this with a friend who says that they're, they're, she's watching her grandchildren just tear her house up and do things that are destructive and hit each other and so on, and the parents are not stepping in like we used to. And maybe it's just that I have a short fuse, but it really is um, pretty important to set up those family laws so the kids know where their parameters are. They're begging to know where to stop. And so um, it really is uh, one of those things that you have to sit down and organize in a family meeting. I think as a couple, you need to sit down and decide what are the laws? What do we expect from our children? When do we want to uh, enforce them? And what is the punishment if they break these laws? So you talk about that. Then you take it to the kids in a family meeting and say, this is what we think. And... um, you can decide even what the punishment is when you break a law um, if their kids are old enough to do that. They're, they're kind of funny because we decided one of our laws was that they could not go somewhere without asking because we had to know where they were. Well, um, it really is interesting that when we said, what do you think we should do? What do you think the punishment should be? When you leave and we don't know where you are and we're worried about you, what should we do? And in a calm family meeting, they will say, a child actually said this, send us to our room for two days with only bread and water and so that we can't come out at all. And they're thinking, well, that sounds good right now, but and you're in that room. I don't know that you're going to want to do that. But the point is they have some ownership in what is going to happen when they break the law. Um, we have really worked hard to 
have just a simple set of laws. We started when our kids were two and three, our first two little girls, and we each gave them um, we gave them um, a set, and we we gave them the idea that they could say what they thought the rule should be. Well, we just kept adding to it every family meeting. It was, again, oh, I think we should have a rule about never hitting other little girls. Oh, we should have a rule about not plugging in plugs. We should have, and anyway, about five years later, our oldest daughter, who was then eight, came to me and said, Mom, even in the whole Bible, there are only ten commandments. We have 35 family laws. Come on. We have got to simplify this. And she was absolutely right. We got it down to five one-word laws in our family. Your laws will probably be different if you've got young children. This is the perfect time to set this up. These are the family laws, and we like to say laws rather than rules. It sounds a little bit more, um, I don't know, stone, um, stone tabletish, I say. Um, but it really is important that they have those type laws. Richard, I don't know if we can hear you, but can you tell us? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm almost. I'm riding along beneath the five fingers of the co-op, and I'm loving here just listening into you. I just want to back up what you're just saying. I think that uh, for some reason, rules, the word rules seems extremely arbitrary and authoritative and restrictive to kids. Maybe it's because they have school rules and they have, you know, want to give them something unique and different. And something about the word law, you know, there are traffic laws, there are country laws. Laws are things that protect us. And, and when kids feel like the family has laws, it almost institutionalizes the family just a little bit more and makes it even more um, palatable for kids to learn these laws. And I love what you said about simplifying. You know, we had way too many. you got to get it down to a few. And the punishment for each one has to be crystal clear. It does. And as I said, let the kids help you organize it. But... You know, keep the punishment simple, too. Um, we um, actually, our five laws, we'll just spit them out. Our five laws were peace, respect, asking, order, and obedience. And we had a little family meeting on each one of those, let them know exactly what was going to happen when they did not obey what was said, exactly what was going to happen when they were gone and we didn't know where they were or when they destroyed the peace in the house. And... Uh, I don't know that we have time to go into all those details today because we still have a third one. Maybe we better save the third one for next week. But, um, we, for example, when they destroyed the peace in our house, which you can imagine, I mean, we have nine kids. They weren't all there all the time. And the oldest left, you know, before, by that little time, and the little one was three. But um, we just said, and somebody else gave us this idea, and some our listeners, many will have heard this idea. We just had a little play, a little bench in our house. It was just big enough for two children to sit on, and it was called a repenting bench. And whenever they fought, when they had a big argument, instead of trying to be the referee and try to figure out who was right and who was wrong and who should be punished, we just said, you go to that repenting bench and you figure this out yourself. And they had to sit there and figure out what they did wrong. And then they had to say to the other person, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I'll try not to do it again. It was a perfect little deal to take you out of the picture, to have them have control over their decisions about what, you know, what they did wrong. But in the well, end, that, it, was, it, it just added a lot of peace to our house. And that's a perfect example of a consequence for each of the laws you set up need a consequence that the kids understand. 
little, by the way, there's nothing cuter than a three-year-old who's learned to use the word consequence. And once kids get what a consequence is, and once they connect it to the law, then you're teaching the right kind of obedience. Because you don't really want to raise kids who are obedient to you as a person. I mean, that would be nice. But the principle is obedience to laws. And then you become the person who also lives the laws and sets the example. And before we get too far out of time, let me introduce the third subject, Linda. And, and in some ways, it's the one that cries out the most in today's world for doing something about it. And we've talked about it on the show before, but kids are entitled today, this entitlement mentality. I want it now, and I don't want to have to wait for it or work for it, and I deserve it now, and I want everything my friend has. And You owe it to me because you're my parent. Nothing is more destructive of a kid's uh, motivation, of a kid's uh, ability to have incentive to do things on his own, than that entitlement attitude. I was just listening the other day. There's a brand-new book out called uh, The Gift of Failure, and it, the essential aspect of it matches so closely with our book, The Entitlement Trap. And basically she's saying if you give kids everything they want, and by the way, if they get a trophy for participating in everything they do, and if they never have a chance to fail, those kids will never grow up to have the grit that you talked about a little earlier, Linda. So we feel you need to set up a family economy. And, Linda, you can describe it more quickly than I can. Well, um, I don't know about that, but it, because we just have a few minutes left, I'll just say that our kids said this is probably the best thing that we did for them now that they're all grown and have their own children, and they're doing this with their own children in their own way. But we felt it was so important that the kids earn what they got. And this started with my mother, who paid me for practicing. She was a great musician. But, you know, practicing is no fun for about the first five years um, and maybe later, longer. But um, it really was, she said, I'm not buying any of your clothes. I'm not buying any of your stuff, any of your games or anything you want. You've got to earn what it is that you want. And uh, there's different ways that parents can do this. Some say, well, I'm just going to do this with the I want and have them earn it. You can start with a four- or five-year-old earning a candy bar when they go to the store or a little truck that they see and, you know, little by little, step by step, and maybe um, literally picking up things in the house that um, they need to do, which is their little job helps them to realize that they have actually earned what it is that they're buying. It's so essential that kids can do this and, and, you know, make it hard. I love the name of that book, and I love the idea that kids have to fail. They have to go through hard times in order to figure out how to make life work. And sometimes we just make it way too easy for them. We did have a little formula that I'll just mention, and that was 10-20-70. We required all the kids to give away 10% of what they earned to save 20% in a special fund, and then they could do the other 70% with the other 70%, whatever they wanted. And I think that really is um, crucial. We have a daughter who said we could never have bought our own house if my husband and I hadn't decided to do that from day one when we first started working. We saved 20%, and it was untouchable until we had enough for a down payment. So it really is um, something to think about. I mean, kids do need direction. 
on money. And as the school year as the school year starts and you're shopping for clothes, the I want, I want, I want just never ends. And if kids know that they've got to earn what they want, it really makes all the difference. Well, I think our time is up. Richard, do you want to say goodbye from wherever you well, are? I just want to want to chime in and say the kids that earn their own money and rather than having a handout are the ones that succeed economically. But it's more than that. It teaches them the kind of discipline that they can have ownership of their goals and of their whole lives. Wonderful job, Linda. I'm unsaddling the horses. I made it back unscathed. And uh, you listeners <laughs> out there, we will do this show from wherever we are. And that's going to be proven to you over the next few weeks when we call in from unruly, unlikely places. On the road. Then, we, we love you all, and we'll see you next time on Ayers on the Road. Bye-bye. Bye.